Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Neil Ellison. As you know, we're studying the book of Philippians. And my portion was to consider here the second chapter of Philippians. If I were to ask you here, what is the most studied passage in Scripture? What would you think? John 3.16, maybe the the birth of Christ, uh, the resurrection, a lot of things that we could think of. But the facts are that the most studied verse of Scripture is the second chapter of Philippians. Perhaps more is written about this verse than any other passage in the New Testament. And that seems strange to us to think that or consider that, but it comes out of an important point here of what happened in the early church. If I were to say you, we as human beings are pretty good at messing things up, I don't think many of you would agree with me. And that was certainly true in the early church because there were many heresies that began to develop about the true nature of Christ. Well, we know that Christ was born of a woman and that he was human. But yet we know that Christ was God, the third person of the Trinity. And people in the early church begin to question, how in the world could that be? How could a person, a man, be a man and God at the same time? And so what happened was is that they started looking for the answer through Scripture. And the one passage of Scripture that kept popping up all the time was Paul's explanation of Christ as man and Christ as God. Some of the weird ideas that <clears throat> came up uh, were, uh, and this happened, believe it or not, uh, for the first 500 years of the church. And in fact, we find some of these things coming back even today. So it's understandable why so much has been written about this particular chapter. One, for instance, uh, called adoptionism, says, this heresy denies the preexistence of Christ and therefore denies his his deity. In other words, Christ didn't exist as the begotten Son of God until he was actually born on earth. It taught Jesus was simply a man who was tested by God and after passing the test was given supernatural powers and adopted as a son. This occurred at his baptism. Jesus was then rewarded for all that he did and for his perfect character with his own resurrection and adoption into the Godhead. People believe that. Another one called docetism, which was uh, entertained by a group called the, the Gnostics. It says it taught that Jesus only appeared to have a body 
and was not truly incarnate or not truly a physical body. Desotus viewed matter as inherently evil and therefore rejected the idea that God could actually appear in bodily form. By denying Jesus truly had a body, they also denied that he suffered on the cross and rose from the dead. Another one in the fourth century said that the, <clears throat> the heresy denied the true and complete humanity of Jesus because it taught he did not have a human mind, but instead had a mind that was completely divine. The heresy lessened the human nature of Jesus in order to reconcile the manner in which Jesus could be both God and man at the same time. And Arianism in the fourth century taught that Jesus was a creature, quote, creature, who was begotten of the Father. Only God the Father is unbegotten. In this view, only the Father is truly God. He was too pure and perfect to appear here on earth, so he created the Son as his first creation. The Son then created the universe. God then adopted Jesus as his Son, because after all, Jesus and God are not supposed to have the same nature in this particular view. Jesus was worshiped only because of his preeminence as the first creation. And then finally, that one heresy said, Mary only gave birth to Jesus' uh, human nature. The founder of this heresy uh, did not even want Mary to be called mother of God, but instead wanted her to be called mother of Christ. In essence, the heresy maintained Jesus was really two separate persons and only the human nature was in Mary's womb. If that was true, then Jesus was not God incarnate while in the womb. And the stories go on and on and on like this. Ultimately, in 351, there was a council that met in the town of Nicaea. It was called the Council of Nicaea. And as they went through, they used this verse, and we'll look at it in a minute here, uh, in the context of some other things. But they said that Jesus Christ was fully human and fully divine. What that means is, is that God, that in Christ, that Christ was not 50% man and 50% God. He was 100% man and 100% God. Sometimes we do figure things out, don't we? Well, I want to look today at the first 11 verses at least of our passage uh, today for the second chapter. And as we do that, there are a number of themes that develop. Uh, if you look at the book of Philippians, there are all kinds of levels to it. I mean, it's, it's an amazing book to study. And one of the things, of course, we know is, is that, G, that, uh, that Paul at that time was in prison, probably in a Roman prison. Uh, Philippi as a city, of course, was named by uh, um, Philip II, who was the father here of Alexander the Great. It's a Greek city, okay? 
And the thing about the city was, is that it was in Macedonia. And of course, we know for a while that Paul um, and his travelers were uh, kept out of Macedonia until Paul had a, a dream one night where uh, a man appeared to him and says, come to us in Macedonia, Macedonia. And he took that as God's direction for him to go there. And so he goes into Philippi, and of course, out of the, uh, I think it's the uh, 16th chapter of Acts, we read the stories of how he met, met Lydia, the, the, you know, the maker of uh, purple uh, uh, cloth, uh, also how, he, um, how they turned around and they cast a demon out of a woman who was uh, being used for monetary purposes like a prophet or sorcerer. And Paul and his companions were thrown into prison. So what happened to Paul in prison? You remember? Got a big earthquake, and all the doors flew open, and all the chains came off. And the, uh, <clears throat> the guard at that time, the guy head of the prison, he was going to kill himself. And Paul says, no, no, we're all still here, you know. You remember that story. That was the start of the church at Philippi. But now at this point, we come to that point where Paul is in prison in Rome. And some people have looked at the book of Philippians as a, a lesson or a message on dealing with sorrow. How do you deal in your life where things are uh, critical or you're concerned or you're worried about things? Because Paul himself uh, talks about having great joy in the midst of the fact that he was in prison and he didn't know what was going to happen to himself, but he writes to the Philippians to encourage them uh, in his circumstances, and he's inviting them to come and join with him in his joy. And he wants them to understand the nature of his joy that he has. So what happens then is, is that there are two parts to these verses. Uh, first one, focus on what God has done for us, and the other is about our response, okay? So let's look at the, the verses here, uh, starting with verse 1 in Second uh, Philippians. Paul says, therefore, and wherever there's the therefore, you have to look back and say what he's there for. But what he's saying here is, is that, Given the fact I'm in prison, given the fact all these things are going on, the uncertainty here, he says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, he wants people to look at Christ. He wants them to look at his circumstances and their circumstances in the light of their relationship with Christ. What he's saying is, remember what Christ has done for us to bring about our salvation. And that's what such good advice to us because, you know, when we're worrying about something or children or family or jobs or circumstances, he's saying the place to stop is to back up and focus on who you are in Christ Jesus. He has saved you. Look at that, understand that, embrace that. And then he says, if there is any consolation, any consolation in my circumstances that I can find or that I can be consoled by, that is be uh, the consolation of love. What does that mean? 
What he's saying, he's referring to the love of the Father. He says, reflect on the fact in the midst of your sorrow or circumstances that God really loves you. Focus on the love of the Father for you and find consolation in that. And then he says, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, find consolation. What does that mean? Well, he's referring to the Trinity here, the Holy Spirit. Find consolation in the unity and fellowship of Christ with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, of which you are now a part. If you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ and you trust in Christ, Look at the love and fellowship of the Trinity, the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is now a part of you. You are there. You're in the midst of that. Find hope and consolation about your place in Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship that you share with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's a good place to start, isn't it? When you start looking at how you deal with your circumstances. He says, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete in being, that you be of the same mind of Christ, maintaining the same love of the Father, united together in the Spirit, intent in one focus. Have the mind of Christ. Be a part of Christ. Find yourself in Christ and look what he has called you to. Find your hope in that relationship. And then he says, do nothing from selfishness or contentiousness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. In the midst of whatever life brings you, part of your living in Christ, part of your walking with Christ, part of your relationship with Christ is not to be overcome, overwhelmed by your circumstances, but consider that as you reach out to other people, if you involve yourself in the lives of others to help them, to encourage them, to minister to them, all of a sudden your mind and your being and your focus is turned away from your problems and you become absorbed in the ministry to somebody else. Some of you are sitting there shaking your heads. Yeah, I know what that means. I know what that means. And we don't think in those terms. We live in a world that says everything is about me. We live in a world that says, talks about self-actualization. Now, it's, it's good to have confidence, but what's your confidence in, for heaven's sakes? It, you know, we look at and we're supposed to be, you know, uh, superhuman beings. You know, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I love, uh, Mark can tell you, uh, I love to watch the, Marvel superheroes, yeah? But stop and think for a minute. Why are those so popular? Have you ever considered that? 
it's because they are all powerful. And when we watch those things, we feel like we're a superhero. Our children do, don't they? That's why they like, I mean, I've got grandchildren and I've got, I think half my pictures are of our grandchildren going around dressed as Superman, dressed as Batman, dressed as Iron Man, you know, you name it. And I mean, they love it and that's fine. You know, I'm not being critical of that here as a part of it, but we do have that need. We have that need to, to find, you know, uh, the, just to be able to feel the security and the power. But Paul is saying here, wherever you are in life, find that in your relationship with Christ. Understand the importance of that and understand what he is doing in your life. Okay, so he says, um, for instance, uh, we look at an example of that, of course, and uh, we, we look at the, the passage of Scripture, if you remember, when Jesus was asked, what's the great commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. But then he adds to it, and love your neighbor as yourself. We all, we all can recite that for most part, you know. We know the story of the Good Samaritan and everything. But that's the message he's saying here, too. And that is, is to be able to focus on the lives of other people and minister to them. And he says, and then he says, have this attitude among yourselves or in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, okay, what does that mean? Because here we're getting into this aspect of what I was talking about earlier is how can be Christ be both man and God? And he begins to lay this out. He begins to unpack this for our understanding here. So he says, oh, <clears throat> he says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What he's saying here is, is that Jesus really was divine. Bottom line, Jesus was divine because he existed in the form of God. Now, he's not speaking here of just an image of God, but that his very nature, his underlying form in his nature was the fact that he was God. But he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasp. And that's a figure of speech that meant that something desirable already existed. Jesus was not trying to become God. Rather, he did not utilize or assert his position as part of the Godhead. Never pulled rank. He never played the God card. He never said, look at me, I'm God. You owe me, I'm God. I can do what I want. I'm God. We know that wasn't his demeanor at all. But anyway, it goes on to say, but he emptied himself. Now, I've looked at what does that mean that he emptied? Have you ever asked that question? Well, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? You know, it's the idea is like, you know, I think of, Taking, when I take out the trash and turn it over and empty it out, what does it mean that Jesus 
emptied himself. Did he give up his deity? Did he give up his supernatural powers? Did he give up his ability to know all things or see the future or have all power or give up his relationship with God? No. It means he laid aside his privileges that he was entitled to as the Son of God as part of the Trinity. He never said, now you must worship me. He never said, bow down before me or pay homage to me. The English Standard Version of the Bible in your pews says, he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. Christ is not said to have removed from himself his identity as God. The phrase means that he humbled himself, relinquishing his heavenly status, not his divine being. He gave up his status, but he was never less than God. Rather, it says that he takes on the form of a bondservant. Okay, what's a bondservant? The word literally means a slave. This language vividly expresses Christ's willingness to deprive himself of his exalted state. In that time, a bondservant was about probably the lowest form of life. And Christ took on that persona and that attitude. And it says, uh, <clears throat> he humbled himself by becoming obedient. <clears throat> Excuse me, I jumped the line here. Being found in appearance as a man, okay, because here he, Paul talks about the humanity, okay? He's uh, completely human. Being, he was made in the likeness of man. Christ is truly human. A likeness means more than similarity. In order to die, he had to become completely human. God can't die. You ever ask yourself what happened to God on the cross? Some people have said that God died on the cross. I'm sorry. That makes it nice for some songs you sing about God dying on the cross. But guess what? God can't die. What died on the cross was Christ in his humanity at that point. He suffered as a human. But for God to die on the cross, that would mean that God would have to change. God, the term we use is we say God is immutable. That means he can't change. He's the same forever throughout all eternity. But for a part of, for Christ to die, or the God part of Christ to die on the cross, that would mean part of God would die and God would change. But that's not true. I bet that's a surprise to most of you. Have you ever thought of that? Doesn't mean that what he accomplished was any less or that he suffered any less. One of the heresies said that, that for example, that um, God, because Christ really didn't, uh, was only human, that God suffered vicariously through the death of his son. No, that's not true. Christ 
died and suffered on our behalf. And he had to become human because if he didn't do that, he would not be able to live the perfect life for us. When Scripture talks about us receiving the righteousness of Christ, what's that mean? I know I'm throwing you a lot here because this passage is like trying to drink out of a fire hydrant, frankly. But when we talk about Christ that we receive in his death, his righteousness, it's not his righteousness as God that we receive. It's the righteousness of living the perfect life that we could not live. And so what happens is, is that when he dies and we believe in him and we trust in him, what happens is, is that our, his righteousness that he's achieved is imputed to us. It's given to us at that point because we haven't and we can't live that perfect life. So what happens, of course, here is, is that Christ dies for us. He had to come as a human being to live this perfect life that we couldn't live so that when he died, then that's imputed to us. You know, if that weren't the case, all he would have had to do is parachute down and then die on the cross and we receive forgiveness of sins. And that would be the end of it. But what Christ has given to us is much more than just forgiveness of sins. He's given us the righteousness that we can't obtain for ourselves. Let's go on. I don't want you to fall asleep. Hang with me, okay? It says here, um, Christ's appearance as a man was not an illusion. He revealed himself through a complete and genuine human nature, united with his divine nature in one person who is both human and divine. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. And this means that he did this by the free exercise of his will. He was obedient to the Father's plan of salvation. We read this stuff and we kind of just blow over it. We don't think about it. But do you realize that as Jesus was in the garden and he was led off by the soldiers, that Jesus in his own mind could have decided, God, this is too much. I'm not going to go through with this. I can't do it. We have to go to plan B. There was no plan B. And Jesus himself, in complete obedience, followed God's plan for redemption. Think of that. Think of that a minute. And then Paul says here, and he did it, he had followed God's plan to the point of death. Submission to the Father's will is more significant for the one who is equal with the Father than for anyone else. Paul's words embrace Christ's whole lifetime of obedience 
while emphasizing that the supreme expression of obedience was his death, even death on the cross. We don't get this. We don't understand this picture because we're not God. We look at it from our perspective and we think, well, a lot of people have died for the sake of other people. We think of the soldier that's gone into battle and he has stepped up and he's taken the, the bullet for somebody else. Or the story of the man who threw himself on the hand grenade in the midst of a company of men and gave his life to save others. That has no comparison with what Jesus gave up as being God to come down here on earth and to give his life for you and me. We're not God. We can't think in those terms to fully understand that. But he did it to the full extent of even experiencing death on the cross. We don't understand the level of shame. We don't understand the painfulness of the death on a cross. It's more than just atonement. And then we go on and read, says, for this reason also God highly exalted him. What does that mean? My wife and I were talking about this earlier. She, what does it mean that God exalted him? Did it mean that Christ, had, you know, uh, all of a sudden was given something he didn't have before? No, that's not the case. Christ is restored to the glorious statue, status that he had at the beginning, but voluntarily relinquished for a time in order to become a human being. God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we give thanks to Jesus Christ for what he has done, when we take communion here and we remember and give thanks about what he does, we glorify God in the midst of this. We glorify God. Peter is telling us here, stop. Think on these things. Focus on these things and understand who you are and what this is all about. Understand what life is about. Understand what's going on. It's not in whether or not I'm in prison or whether I'm going to live or die. And even suggest to them that this could happen to them, that they could find themselves in the same position that he's in. But he said, this is all more about life than just what we experience. So then, my beloved, 
just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here's a phrase that, man, I've heard so many questions about. He says, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You ever ask, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean I have to work out my salvation? Does it mean I have to earn my salvation? Does it mean that I lose my salvation if I'm not working on it or doing something good? Or, or you know, what does that mean? What Paul is saying here is, is that the Holy Spirit is given to you to work in you and in your life to change you into the image of Christ. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is more than just being able to give you the gift of speaking in tongues or to give you the opportunity to prophesy or to have discernment or wisdom. The work of the Holy Spirit, the focus of the Holy Spirit, is to work in your life to transform you into the person of Jesus Christ. So he says, in that process, be aware of that. Pay attention to that and work towards that end in your own life here and do it with fear. Now, it gets me because the Bible keeps talking about the fear of God. And a lot of people misunderstand that. I think, oh, you know, I've got to cower down and, and God is going to get me. No, that's not what it means. Mo many of you know that the, when it talks about the fear of God, it talks about showing respect for God, to honor God, recognize who God is, you know, to respect him. When you fear God, you show respect and acknowledge who he is. And then it says also tremble. You think trembling, being afraid, okay? Now, I, I, I was working on this to try and understand this too, and because I know when I went to Jerusalem, some of you have been to Jerusalem, if you know, if you go up to the uh, Wailing Wall, the Jews are standing there, and some of them are doing like this. There are different ideas about what that means, but when I was there, I was told what that is doing is showing humility, humility before God, an act of like bowing before God. So show God respect. At the same time, be humble before God. Humble yourself in this regard. Revere God, for it is God who is at work in you. God is working his plan in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love that line because sometimes I don't have the will to do what God wants me to do. Ever identify with that? Well, we've had that. I don't want <laughs> He's telling me to do this. I don't want to do it. <laughs> But God's Holy Spirit is working in us to help us to want to do what God is doing in our life, to do what he is calling us to do 
and that he is empowering us to do it as a process of working, both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. The word there, improve, is also the word become. You know, in, in uh, Greek and even in Hebrew, a word can mean several different things. Think of the English language. How many words do we know that there are multiple words that have different meanings? But he says, do all things without grumbling or dispute so that you will become blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Another translation says, among whom you shine as the stars in the world. And then it goes on to say, holding forth fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul tells us, please come join with me in your life. Walk with me as we walk together to live out God's plan for our lives. Depend on him. Look for your joy in him. Look for your relationship. Remember what he's done for you. Let's walk together and share this joy together. Amen and amen. Mark, you want to come up here? I'm good. Let me pray. And as Mark's coming up, and we're going to share a couple of things. He's going to share some things with you. Lord, our desire is to walk together in love, in devotion, submitting ourselves to you, humbling ourselves, not seeking our own way, but looking to you as our Savior, as the one who is transforming us, Lord, to walk before you in your grace. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.